So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's nearly all the way to the right. One of the final books arranged, written by the Apostle Paul. We'll be in chapter 2. Um, I'll just be preaching the first two verses of our passage this morning. Really, it's one chapter 2 is all one big block. I intended to preach verses 11 through 15, but uh, what I'm going to do is preach verses 11 and 12 today and then pick up verses 13 through 15 next week, God willing. And this is an uh, amazingly uh, large chapter in a lot of people's lives because of what it says and doesn't say, what it promotes and what it forbids. Questions come from this text like, can women be pastors or preachers to the church? Is Paul's instruction meant only for the people who would have received it firsthand in Ephesus, or does it have the same power and authority even for Crosspoint Church today? Does women leading the church endanger the church as it appears to be within the thrust of Paul's argumentation? Or when it comes to the biblical teaching about the role of women in the church, people often approach it with trepidation. There's a lot of reasons why people might approach this text with trepidation. First is the danger of controversy. Few issues have brought more division in recent years. You think of the church global, or in our case national, or even within our state. Few issues have brought more division in recent years than what the words teaching are on women. Churches divide over this. Denominations split over this. Split over the idea or the unidea of a woman being a pastor. Second is the culture's rejection of Scripture. God's instruction for women and men actually, arguably, stand against culture's tide, where culture seems to shape biblical truth rather than biblical truth seeking to shape culture. The the third reason you might approach this text with trepidation is that there is danger of personal opinion distorting Scripture's teaching. In seeking to understand uh, or the teaching of these passages, passages like 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Timothy 3, which 1 Timothy 2 talks about all of us being placed under authority in some level, one way or another, and then verse th- uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the role of elders and deacons within that. How often do people say, well, I just don't like that verse? Or how often do churches say, well, it's worked for us for a long time, so why would we adapt to what the Word says? Why would we hear textual difficulties Words like quietly, what does that mean? Submissiveness, what does that mean? Teach, what does that mean? Or exercise authority, what does that mean? As we'll see in verses 11 through 12. Words matter, definitions matter, Paul's argument matters, Paul's apostolic instruction to this church matters, also for us. So one thing I want you to take away from today is how actually, I think, helpful this passage is for the fruitfulness of a church's ministry going forward. The context and tension of the audience of 1 Timothy, remind yourselves, is that this was a church that was in trouble of what Paul says, shipwrecking their faith, shipwrecking their witness to an outside world. And so what he does is he, in many ways, grabs hold of that boat or grabs hold of that church and says, this is how God ordained you to live. This is how God ordains you to worship. This is what God's word says for you. And very often when we feel out of control or when we feel like we want to do what we want to do and someone comes to correct us, how many times should we have quickly said, oh, thank you for speaking to me and helping me? So one thing I want us to take away is the 
how helpful this passage is for our own church's sake. The church is in trouble, or it was veering off track, and this is not just a random list of advice for men and women, but the heart of Christ coming to the aid of his saints through the apostle and now here through the word. Churches can be messy. Oftentimes people speak of that proudly. Church is just a messy place. Here's the thing. It doesn't have to be. If people lived obediently and according to what God has called them, it actually is a wonderful place. Think of your own house. When people are mad or angry at each other, does it have to be like that? Or can it be a sweet place where a husband sacrifices himself for his wife? A wife loves her husband and children obey their parents. So churches can be messy, but they shouldn't be. And they won't be if they cling to and obey the words of Christ. In the face of danger and difficulty, though, praise God that the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to us, for us. you got to think of it that way. The Holy Spirit, speaking through his word, is not only speaking, friend, to you, but is actually speaking for you, aiming to guide you, if you would hold on to what he says is true, so that we can see and cherish Christ. Our, our passage can be separated into four parts. Now, for us today, I'll just do two of those four parts. So you're already ahead of the game on next week's outline. But verse 11, Paul instructs women how women are to position themselves in worship. Verse 12, Paul counters that with how they're not to position themselves in worship. Verses 13 and 14, he, he actually takes his argument in verse 11 and verse 12, and then he grounds it. He grounds his instruction, he grounds his argumentation by going all the way back to the creation order in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then in verse 15, he actually gives the God-focused hope of all of this. Now, I, I, know, I know that verse 15 is piquing your interest about what that says and what that can mean for us, but you must come back next week if you want to hear it. We'll not get to it today. But the things that I want to do today are to, are to see what the Word says for what Christ calls women to do and what Christ calls women not to do within the church. So if you've got an outline, look, look at the first part. and look at the, If you've got a Bible, look at the first verse of the section, verse 11, where it says what Christ does call women to do. The, the first thing we see so clearly in this passage is that he calls women to learn. Christ, through his apostle, actually calls women to learn. And this, this all happens within the context of warnings against insubordination. So as Paul is trying to correct this church by saying, hey, you, you all cannot do whatever you want to do, he tells them in the first couple of verses how they're to submit themselves under the authority of the age. And then he tells men, hey, you can't act like how you want to act like. It'll be your fleshly thing to dominate other people in argumentation and with a hearty heart, but, haughty heart, but I want you to come to me and worship with a submissive heart. He then talks to the woman within the case of submission. Paul speaks positively to women here, and I want you to see all these commands, both what he says to do and what he says not to do. I'll I'll harp on this heavily later on, but all of these commands are positive things. So all of them are positive things, and he first tells them the positive way to worship him, which is by learning. Women are to learn. Paul shatters what would be the conventional ancient stereotypes. In the Roman world, women were intellectually seen as second class, not even allowed to learn next to other men. But the word of God says nearly the opposite of that because he not only says women are to learn, but he he grounds this in, and we see the the scriptures ground this in, and he'll do this later in verses 13 and 14, because women, like men, are made in the image of God. God calls her to learn. It's her duty to know biblical doctrine. It's her duty to delight 
in the theology that he has bestowed on all of his creation within the Word. So some argue that Paul had, had male domineering views about gender, and the Bible just says, no, he doesn't. It says the opposite. In the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament, which is scattered with examples of women engaged in vital ministry, many of them close friends to the Apostle Paul, it is not too much to say that one burden of Paul's ministry was to ensure that the gifts of women, as well as the gift of men, but the gifts of women were used to their fullest extent. Christians ought to encourage, ought to be encouraged by what the Bible says about women, where the church, where within the church there is no reason to be ashamed of what God has said about women in his word. I think this is interesting. As I've been, as I've been thinking about what I say in the last like five or ten years, uh, in many ways, I've seen it said elsewhere where oftentimes churches will talk about their men's ministry as, as overcoming every kind of burden within the church. So they might say, and I've said it in the past, we want to engage men, we want to speak to men in such a way that they will build up women and children around them. And you get what that's saying, right? We want to, we want to build up this, this focal point of the family that God has created, that men ought to lead their homes. So if we talk to the men, then they can talk to the women. I, I, I think, though, I, I get what that says, but I think what the Bible clearly says is we should engage men with the doctrine of Christ, and we should engage women with the doctrine of Christ. I gave this example to a friend earlier this week, like who's a married man, and I said, I don't think it would be weird of me. In fact, I think it would be right of me as a pastor to your wife to come up to her and say, how can I pray for you? Maybe what are some questions about the word that you, you may be wondering about? Or what are some of the things that you might struggle with? I'm not, I'm not overcoming his role as a husband, but just as a pastor, I think what the scriptures call women to do is to learn a priority within their own heart. So women, application is obvious. Know the word. Do you know the word? Not just do you not know the word because someone else does. Not just do you not know the word because you feel like you've grown up in church a long time. But the apostle, speaking the very words of Christ, are coming at you and say, no, God. And it will take you the rest of your life, woman. But know the Lord. How can you know the Lord? Paul gives us an indication of how you can faithfully, women, pursue a knowledge of the Lord within the confines of the church. It says in verse 11, the text says that women within the church are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, the word quietly is repeated at the end of verse 12. He's kind of, kind of framing an argument here. Quiet doesn't have the connotation, though, of zip lips. So I don't want you to think of it as like someone saying, women, shut up, but do learn. But the implication here is one of stillness to the teaching, one of submission to what's being said. Now, sometimes I have a habit, sometimes I have a habit of listening to you, but not actually listening. I'm thinking of something that I'm going to say right after you're done saying it. This makes for really encouraging arguments, doesn't it? You might say something to me, and the whole time I'm listening to you, I'm actually way, thinking of ways that I can either agree with you or counter with what you're saying. That's the exact opposite personality that Paul is telling women to have. Women are called to learn quietly within the understanding that that would, them acting with a stillness. Listen to the implication of this. It says that women are to learn quietly. In church, women should have a gentle demeanor as they approach the word, as it does earlier in this chapter where Paul says that Christians should lead a peaceful and quiet life. It's not like men should 
uh, learn loudly and women should learn quietly, but we should all be aiming to live a peaceful and quiet life. But there, was, there is clear indication here that women were not doing in this church, but rather interrupting or being a distraction towards the, the learning taking place within the church. But elsewhere it said that we should all live peaceful and quiet lives. Now, a, a notable episode for, I hope this will help you understand what Paul is talking about here, a notable episode from the life of Paul. So Paul's going to use language that he would know, and he's going to use language he, he would know as an example from a case that he would have gone through, where Paul actually helps to show what does he mean when he says quietly. Now, on his last trip to Jerusalem, Paul was confronted by an angry mob. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, go left. And if you find yourself in the book of Romans, keep going left to chapter 21. The chapters are the large numbers in the middle of the page, and the verses are the little numbers within the context of the page. On his last trip to Jerusalem, Paul was confronted by an angry mob outside of the jail where he was imprisoned. And in Acts 21, it says where it says that Paul started speaking. So this is this is within verses 40 and into chapters 21. It says that Paul started speaking. And when he started speaking, it says there was a great hush that overcame the crowd. This would be like a zip lip. I don't know if you've ever had command of an audience or command of a crowd around you. Maybe that's what some of you parents beg for. Like when I speak, everyone listens here. Or sometimes you could say something on a car ride. That, not that it's ever happened, that everyone all of a sudden becomes silent. There's a hush over the crowd. There's a zipping of the lips. That's one word in the Greek that is used in this case. And when he continued, the, the story goes on, when he continued preaching, it says they heard him, the audience heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, and they became even more quiet. So two di different Greek words there for hush and quiet are used to describe this crowd. There was a hush of the crowd. You, you, we all know what that means. They were silenced by just him speaking to them, but then became, they became even more quiet. They became quiet. It's the latter word which Paul uses in 1 Timothy. And it talks about respectful listening. Likewise, Paul tells women to give pastors the same attention when he received, that, that he received when he spoke to them in Jerusalem. So women are to learn not only quietly here, but we have another case where, of giving us an example of how they're to learn. It says, with all submissiveness. To learn is to be obedient or to yield to the authority of the one teaching. Here it means to respect and trust the authority that God has given to the elders of the church who are the teachers of the church and that women would receive their teaching in a spirit of joyful agreement. It's a wonderful example. Uh, and there is also another wonderful example of this kind of submissive learning through the person Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Jesus had stopped in this person's home to rest. And while he was this per in this person's home, you might know this story for many examples. Are you either Mary or are you a Martha? Which is what often people take from this text. And it's really not the point of the text at all. Oftentimes people say, I'm a lot like Martha and I need to be more like Mary. Or I'm a lot like Mary, but maybe I should be a little bit more Martha. And really, I, I want you to see what, what Jesus is calling us to see from this text. When he went into this home and Martha was, it says, distracted with much serving. She was busy. Meanwhile, Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to everything he said. So you can already see yourself in this home. Here's Mary sitting at this uh, rabbi's feet, learning from him, listening to him. And then there's Martha, maybe on the other side of the room or another part of the house, 
acting very busy, which is not a bad thing to be busy. Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to everything he says, it said. It made Martha mad to see Mary loafing around when there was much work to be done. And in her exacerbation, she finally complained to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Basically, am I the only one who's going to help out here? Notice what Jesus did not do in response when she said, tell her then to help me. He did not tell Mary to go back to the kitchen where she belonged, as culture would say. He did not relegate her to the so-called women's work. Instead, Instead, he said to Mary, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Learning, with all submission, the words of Christ in that case and in our passage confirm the dignity and necessity of women becoming students of the Bible. They also serve as a rebuke for any man or woman who thinks that theology is mainly for men. What Mary was learning from Jesus was the Word of God. She was learning true doctrine and how to apply it in a daily life. God wants women to be knowledgeable in the Scriptures and in sound theology. Why? Because they are image bearers. What does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be a human versus a dinosaur? Is it that you can think differently? Maybe your arms are a little bit longer? What makes you different than the birds in the, in the sky or a mountain on the horizon? It's that God has created you, woman, created you, man, to reflect his glory to the ends of the earth. And how would you ever begin to reflect the glory of God if you don't know anything about it? And so here he's treating women with much dignity, saying, hey, learn. Notice the way Mary learns. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary learned in the rabbinic style. She kept her place. She was listening rather than talking. She was sitting at Jesus' feet rather than standing over him, which was the place of submission to the teaching of the authority. And in other words, as Mary sat in the seminary of Christ, she learned quietly with all submissiveness. Now, men can lead in this too, can't we? Uh, it, was, it was, for those of you who are new, uh, my, when my wife had a baby, we were away for about five weeks. Uh, three of those weeks, we were at a hospital in Oklahoma City in the NICU, so it, it was actually kind of fun for me to actually have the excuse and ability to go visit other churches. Went and visited other friends' churches and went and visited other churches where I don't have friends in them. I went to four different churches over that five different, uh, five-week period. And, and I just want to say as a pastor, it's really hard to go into someone else's church and not try to either steal ideas or to say, oh, that's totally why we don't do that. Rather than when they open the word, me too, submit to that text. When we see songs reminding ourselves of the heaven where we really want to be, me not knowing anyone around, and them having either really great or, in one case, really horrible music, not join them in singing. Because we all are called to submit in hearing and learning about Christ. Now to hone in on this word submit here, or submission, uh, with all submissiveness, submission is is carefully defined here as all submissiveness. The Bible doesn't say partial submission. In fact, there's no such thing as partial submission. It does not say grudging submission. It does not say anything but full or entire or all submissiveness. There's no category for how a woman should operate outside of that within the context of the church. The Bible says all submissiveness because full submission is the only kind of submission there is. 
Anything less than full submission is no submission at all. Partial submission reserves the right to rebel. It leaves room to manipulate and control. There are caveats or subtexts or footnotes of like, well, if that doesn't happen, then I can do this. That's kind of like grudging submission. It reserves the right to grumble. It leaves room for resentment and bitterness. But true submission is total submission, and it is a heart surrendered to God through when his word goes out, all of us. But in this case, he is talking specifically to women, clearly because of what we'll talk about next week, but also just the natural inclination to not listen. We have a responsibility to understand submission biblically, which includes resisting the urge to think of submission as anything negative. Submission, as it is used in the scriptures, is never used in the negative sense. Keep in mind that the men to whom women are called to submit in the church are men who are to meet the qualifications for elders that Paul will provide in the following chapter. They're, they're not to be domineering tyrants. So, so he is not calling you to submit yourself to domineering tyrants because he says you should excuse them from that office. And wherever the idea of submission appears in the New Testament which is Hebrews 12, James 4, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5. It's always stated with positive language. Now, of course, this is where I'm, I'm, I use the terms teach or to learn and submission. These are positive ways of writing these words. Now, of course, the best place to understand this, as we often want to buck against any route of submission, we even think if the speed limit is 45, I've been told that cops won't pull you over if you're only going five miles over the speed limit. So in some way, I'm submitting to it in a little bit, but actually you're not submitting to it at all, right? We, we want to do stuff like that. We want to go against what has been commanded for us. And so oftentimes we need examples of how to submit. And of course, the best place to understand the beauty of submission is in the example of Christ Jesus himself. Between God the Father and God the Son, there is the most perfect equality. The Son has every attribute the Father has. They are equal in power and glory. Nevertheless... The son submitted, not kind of submitted, not begrudgingly submitted, but submitted to the will of the Father even unto his death on the cross. At the cross of Christ, we see that the submission does not entail coercion, but willfulness, voluntary obedience to God's will for God's glory. And so I think it's helpful for all of us, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to speak to you just specifically for a second, it's helpful for us to see all of this teaching and context as on one side of the cross, not the other side of the cross. If you have a cross in front of you, the, the before Christ was crucified and resurrected, you might think of that to the left, and where this passage comes to us is from the right. So when we look back on this cross, when we look back on this example, we see what true submission looks like so that you and I can live in such a way that we reflect God's glory, as image bearers are called to do, we reflect the kind of submission that we're called to have based on the actual work of Jesus on the cross. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what it basically means to be a Christian is to recognize that I, in my own heart, am not to be submitted to. I'm not in charge of my own life. I cannot rule and regulate the boat that I might be commandeering. I can never look at someone and say, I'm the captain now. What Christianity at its base root says is that we are all sinful in our flesh, naturally, and by our own action. But that's really bad because God originally made everything good and called man to live perfectly within this creation that he had, but man fell. 
And so there is a need for us, non-Christian, there is a need for you to see the one who is true perfection, to see the one who is truly good, to see the one who is truly holy, and to say, I need you to take my place in life so that I am not given over to the penalty for all the sins that I deserve. And so we call out to the Lord to save us because he is the Lord who can save us. And he says, anyone who comes to me, I will not cast away. Anyone who comes to me and says, I am not worthy. He says, you are right. You are not worthy. But take what I have in your life. And the amazing thing, what happened at the cross, going back to this cross analogy, we're on this side, not that side. Going back to this cross analogy, what he did at the cross was actually pay the penalty that we deserved. He absorbed the wrath that we should have absorbed on ourselves. And then he gives us new life, eternal life, and joy with him. And he says, now go live likewise, like me. I will, I will empower you by the Holy Spirit to live like me. And one of the ways that he says to live like him, ladies, is to learn with all submissiveness. So on this side of the cross, God commands women to submit to their elders' instruction within the church. To submit in this way is to be like Christ. This is why the women of the church must never let go of God's command to learn in all submissiveness. Whenever they put this into practice, whenever they put this command into practice, they actually display to a watching world that they are not their own, but they belong to the Lord. And whatever his word says, that that's, they will follow, knowing that that is for their own good. The second thing that we see in this text, we see in the next verse, we see that the words of Christ through the Apostle Paul tells women what they can do, what they should do, what they're called to do. But then we see, secondly, where Christ forbids women to do certain things. We see where Christ forbids a woman to do something. And the first way I'm going to look at what I'm going to do here is I'm going to isolate two words, okay, one step, two step, and then I'm going to combine them at the end of this point. The first word I want to talk about is the word teaching. You see in the text here, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's clear some of you didn't turn to Acts. 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. At the same time the Bible commands women to learn and worship, it also commands them not to teach and worship. That's verse 12. Verse 11 and verse 12 are joined together by the conjunction but. Now, some Christians have taken this verse to mean that no woman should ever teach anything to any person. But all all of God's sons and daughters are to exercise a ministry of sharing the gospel. Women are not to be silent in their evangelism. They are to be silent, though, in the teaching instruction within the church. So you've got a couple of examples uh, in the scriptures where you have the prophecy in the book of Joel where men and women will come and start prophesying. What that's talking about is affirmed in the New Testament. What that's talking about is they will not be silent on the sharing of the gospel. So what can women do? Oh, man, they're to share the gospel. This does not mean that they're to remain silent on that, but it does mean that they're called to be silent when it comes to the teaching office of the church. They're called to bear witness to the gospel, and in keeping within the principle, the Apostle Paul gave the following instructions to women as well as to men in Colossians chapter 3. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. But there is at least one place where it is not appropriate for women to teach, and it is in the authoritative proclamation of God's word in the context of the public worship of the church. Meaning, can women be preachers? 
According to the Bible, no. Not in church. Can women be pastors? Well, let's see that a little bit more. Here, it is important to remember the context of Paul's command. Since the beginning of the chapter, he has been giving Timothy instructions about corporate worship services. What he writes is not intended to govern men and women in every situation, but it applies especially to those occasions when the church gathers for the preaching of the word. Now, next week, God willing, what I, what I intend to do and hope to do is to give you the biblical context for why Paul is isolating these two things about men having angry hearts and women having submissive hearts or women having learning hearts with all submissiveness. The word teach or the word instruct in this passage has a specific meaning in, the, in Paul's pastoral letters. It is referring to the exposition of Scripture in the official teaching of sound doctrine. The fundamentals of the faith. It's the, it's the instruction from the word with sound doctrine, the fundamentals of the faith. We see him calling them the fundamentals of the faith in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11, 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2. And it's also talking about the teaching, or teaching is what Paul did in his official role as an apostle. He said this earlier. But also what the elders of the church are tasked with and ordained to do in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we'll see in a couple of weeks where he says, this is how men and women should operate in the church. This is what ordained men are called to do by teaching of the gospel. We see it also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. I think it's obvious then why eldership is in the next section that Paul addresses toward the men and the women within 1 Timothy. But what the Holy Spirit commands women not to do is transmit the apostolic doctrine publicly and officially. Or to put it more simply, what God is forbidding women to do is to preach in church. To put it more simply, the main thing that God forbids women to do is to preach or to exercise the doctrinal and disciplinary authority that is tied to the preaching ministry. Now, one sign uh, that Paul and the Holy Spirit have preaching in mind in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, where we are, is the way that teaching is coordinated with having authority. So teach and exercise authority are actually closely related terms. Now, liberal pastors, liberal scholars, they want to separate these two. Uh, The activity they most clearly suggest, though, is preaching with authorities. In a moment, I'm going to bring these two together. But you can see how if you separate these two, then you can do one without the other and feel like you're fine. Or do the other without the one and feel like you're fine. You know, the easiest example is, can a woman preach if she finds herself under the submission of the elders? Like some, some churches have elders, and then they have pastors, and then they have staff, then they have deacons, and then they have servants. There's two offices in the church. There's elder, pastor, overseer. I'll talk about that in a minute. But if you say, well, she's just preaching under the authority of the elders, that's breaking this sentence all the way apart. Remember, all of these terms are positive in these two verses. So women should not teach the gospel fundamentals in the church assembly. That's the easiest way to see this. The activity they most clearly suggest is preaching with authority. So let me, let me hone in on exercise authority real quick. The, the Greek word for exercise authority, which is one word in the Greek, causes some legwork because this is the only place it appears in the New Testament. Now, some people who go against the the role of this, and they're called egalitarians, they argue that the word refers to violent behavior. So they can preach if they're not violent. I I hope that'd be the case, but it's not what it's talking about at all. And this argument is based on a confusion between these the, within this word, which comes from a different root word altogether. They, they use the word violently, and they place it on top of the word, exercise authority, make it into a different word, which they just mess up from the beginning. Others say that it means to usurp the authority of people. 
which if you hear usurp within the context of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, that does make sense. But in our day and age, usurp clearly means to topple. So can they preach if they just don't topple the teaching of the church? Again, what does the text say? Now buckle up. There are several problems, and I want to go through all of them, and that's why we're not doing all five verses this morning. There are several problems with this kind of interpretation where you can separate teach and exercise authority. Now, again, before he goes off, he's talking about one thing, but I'm going to isolate these so we can talk about them to add clarity. One is the abuse of power is an objectionable is as objectionable in men as it is in women. So if he's saying women can't do this unless they just don't usurp the authority or domineer, well, men and women can act that way likewise. And it'd be surprising for Paul to limit this instruction to women. More important, after he just gave this instruction to men, more importantly, the grammatical link between verses 11 and 12 actually strongly suggests that the verb for authority, authentine, is being used in a positive sense. Like I said, exercise authority. Exercising authority is a good thing. If a disaster happens in Enid and FEMA shows up and exercises authority, I doubt many of us are going to see that as anything but helpful. So exercising authority here is a positive term. Rather, it is not a negative term. It is not used in the negative sense. So just as let a woman learn quietly, in verse 11, is set over against, I do not permit a woman to teach. So positive, negating positive. In verse 11, it's, it also says that she is to be operating with all submissiveness in verse 11, which stands in opposition to, I do not per women, permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, even though they're both opposite. But you can see how Paul gives these two things and then these two things of what you are called to do and what you are not called to do, and it makes sense linguistically. Learning is contrasted with teaching. Submitting, with all submissiveness, is contrasted with exercise and authority. But... If exercise authority means usurp authority, then the balance of the grammatical structure is upset and that the meaning of the passage, I think, is lost. So basically, what I want you to hear is that these two commands, teach and exercise authority, are actually meant to be understood as connected, where you cannot have one without the other. It would be like saying one person is a husband, but then at other times he is a boss, or one person is a husband, and then at other times he's a parent. Well, hopefully, unless you've got bizarre case in front of you, you're talking about the same person. So the argument here is that teach and exercise authority is one thing that Paul is arguing for where you cannot have one without the other. Now, some pastors today think that women can teach within the church if she's not exercising authority. She can pastor, but not be an elder. These are where words matter. Now, I've said it multiple times in many different settings. I don't know why it's confusing I'm not saying you're dumb for thinking it's confusing, but I want you to hear that the Bible uses interchangeably pastor, elder, overseer. It'd be like me saying, I am Brooke's husband, I am Bradley's dad. There's not two things, I'm one person. Interchangeably, throughout the scriptures in various forms, those words are indicating different, different instincts of those offices. You think of a pastor, much like a shepherd. You think of an elder, much like... Um, much like a leader, or you think of a, a bishop, which is bishpatah in the Greek, where it's, they're acting as an overseer, connecting people within the church. And so I think it's helpful for us to see when Paul is talking about, what Paul is talking about here is that one role is being forbidden. Um, so to think that a person can exercise authority, uh, be a pastor, but not be an elder, unless she's domineer, 
domineering. That, that just doesn't make sense contextually. And that would be seen usurping wrongly. Usurping is a fine translation for this Greek word, but difficult in our context because we often don't understand the syntax and we don't have Genesis 1 through 3 in mind. Now, there, are, there is an important link between teaching and exercise and authority within verse 12. For the grammatical structure that is used in this verse, I've said it before, but the Greek language insists on having two words with positive connotations or two words with negative connotations, but not one of each. Paul never writes like that. People at that time never wrote like that. They would only use either both positive or both negative. And I think the use of the word shows no negative sense of grasping or usurping or domineering authority or exercising it, using it in a harsh or authoritative way, but simply means to have or exercise authority. Paul is speaking about the rightful use of elder authority here. What does a good elder look like? One who teaches and exercises authority. And what Paul is saying here is that's not for the role of the woman. So let me put it like this. Imagine you have a teenager who wants to go to the mall with his friends. Or, I don't know, do they have field parties anymore? I don't know. Not that I've ever been to one. But imagine he wants to go to a party, and he says, Dad, can I go to a party? Mom, can I go to a party? And you look at your son, you trust your son, you like your son, and you say, okay. But you you got to be home before 11, and you cannot for any reason drink alcohol. Okay? It's clear on what's happening there. Now, what if your son comes home at 9, drunk, and he says, but I made it home by 9, so I'm good. I can do one, not the other. I'm still, you know, whatever. We all don't do great. Or what if he comes home at 3 a.m., but he says, I didn't have any alcohol, so I'm good. What's clearly being shown here is for your word to be followed and not divided or separated. And that's the context of this passage. You're giving a command, even though it might have what seems like two parts, it is one thing being given out here. So if he would come home in a different way, you would surely seek to discipline him. Now, there's a reason why on your outline I have a subsection that's actually one thing, which is different than the other subsections. Because the meaning of all this changes if Paul is limiting one thing or two things. Now, ultimately, I believe he argues one thing. Women cannot function like a pastor in worship. Women cannot function like a pastor in worship. I know there are some who think that a woman can act like a pastor, or, or they see this as fulfilling um, the, the function of the office, even if they don't have the title of the office, where they can function like a pastor within worship, even if they're not called elder or pastor. Paul forbids that. And I know that there are some who act like a pastor, even though they're not titled one. Like, she can preach, but she may be under the authority of elders. Churches like this operate all the time. The largest church in Oklahoma City operates like this. Crossings Community Church, the largest church in America, operates like this. Life Church in Oklahoma City, they function like this, where they say, women can do these things because we don't want to restrict their function, but we just don't give them the title. I actually think that's a sexist argument. You know, we'll, we'll allow you to do the work, but we won't pay you for it. That's sexism, and that's not what Paul is arguing for. Our own denomination does that, where they were, or they'll ordain female pastors, except not lead pastors. And I just want to go, that's, that's not in the Bible, and I actually think that's more offensive. You, you can do all the work, we just won't give you the corner office. One that's not in the scriptures. And if we want to be people of God, we've got to give ourselves over to the simple instruction of the word. And I think they're wrong because of passages like this and other passages. In short, that phrase describes both the function of eldership, pastoring, overseeing. So this this category is talking about the function of a pastor, 
And then just one chapter later, he's going to talk about the qualifications of the office of elder. Who can be an elder? Not every man. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and 4, and 5, what Paul does again and again is he tailors these two actions together, teaching and having authority when he talks about elders. I'll, I'll explain more of that next week. But in 1 Timothy 3, elders are described as both overseers and teachers. Not, not one or the other, but both elders and overseers. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul commands Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus, to command and teach in one phrase. To command and teach. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul honors those elders who rule well and who labor in preaching and teaching. So I think we have to see this function and ask ourselves, is Paul listing two things or one? I think linguistically and biblically, Paul is listing one thing. If you think, and people do, if you think he's listing two things, then no offense, I actually think you're missing the point of Paul's argument completely. Because in the New Testament, authority is exercised in the local church. We see in the following chapters where authority is exercised in the local church, in the first instance, actually through elders, pastors, and overseers. Three words with one referent. Three words which refer to one person. Primarily through what? If the power of God is operating through these elders, how is that done? Primarily, it's through the teaching of the word. In other words, it's not that I'm a pastor, and therefore you should listen to me. It's not that I'm a pastor, and therefore I have the authority by virtue of my position. Rather, the authority is exercised primarily by faithful teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. It's not just what I say, but it's it's from where I say it. That's where we still continue to say that Christ is the head of the church. So that although you might refer to two components of all of this, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority. In fact, there are, there are two tied up, or these two are tied up in one thing in the New Testament. Think of it. To exercise authority in the ministerial office does not stand on the status of the man. It stands on the church's submission to the authority of the word of God to the truth of the gospel, to what Jesus has said, to words that will stand for all eternity, which are rightly and faithfully taught and proclaimed in the congregation from the word of God. Where is such authority exercised in the church? Certainly in the writing and arrangements of creeds and confessions that summarize the Christian doctrine, but primarily by preaching the word of God, which is the authoritative proclamation of the gospel. Not, not that preaching is infallible, but that preaching is the exercising teaching authority. What's amazing to, to us and amazing to me is that God does not just give us a book and say go, but God calls us to listen to what that book regularly says, that we are continually nurtured by the preaching of the gospel, which is why any of you who've ever gone six months without going to church, there is something spiritually, and you know this, there's something spiritually lacking in your heart because you are not being fueled. It's like an athlete who never rests. At some point, it feels like their muscles start to wear down because they're not being poured back into in this context. Now, there are some objections of this, obviously. What I've said here, is, though, has been the nearly universal understanding of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years, and only in the late 20th century did it come under relentless attack, where the strategy has been to deny the authority of these verses, saying, I just don't like that, or that's misogynistic, some say that verse 12 in particular is only Paul's private opinion. He's saying, I personally don't want a woman to teach or to claim inordinate authority. 
But against this, it must be stated that the biblical word for permission is the word for command. Also, Paul is speaking with apostolic authority. So in verse 12, it, should be understanding, it could be understood as I, that is to say, I, Paul, who have been appointed by God to be a herald, apostle, and teacher of the true faith, do not permit a woman to teach. This is not a private opinion, but an apostolic command for the churches to hold on to. Others say that Paul was mistaken, that he barred women from the pulpit because he was a chauvinist or because he was limited by his own Jewish and Greek attitude uh, about the value of women. So given his background and his training, he just didn't know what you and I know today. It's currently the theology that's being taught or has been taught for the last 50, 60 years at Duke Divinity and Harvard Divinity and Princeton Divinity where those things, of course, lay themselves over to sexual infidelity. If women and men are not different at all, then why can't a man have a woman? Or why can't a man have a man or a woman have a woman? Why can't a man deny himself from being a woman if it really doesn't matter? All of it finds its root in what God says. Others say that Paul was mistaken, but you've got to remember that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul did not allow women to preach because God does not allow it. Here it's good to heed the words of the Apostle Peter who said Paul's letters containing such things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So since they are holy scripture, Paul's letters are not to be ignored unless it comes at the church's peril. And at the same time, it must also, it must also be denied that either the Apostle or God himself is a chauvinist. The better these verses are understood, the clearer it becomes that they do not demean women in any way. Now, while the liberal approach to deny the authority of these verses, the strategy of evangelical feminists is to limit their application by saying that Paul was addressing circumstances that were unique to Ephesus, and some point to the poor quality of education there for women. Others argue that the Hellenistic culture simply wasn't ready for women in ministry. Often Galatians chapter 3 is used as a manifesto for the ordination of women, where Galatians 3 does say, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. But based on these arguments, many Christians have felt free to set the structure of 1 Timothy aside and proceed with the ordination of women to the pastoral office, ignoring the reality that Galatians chapter 3 is about salvation, not sanctification. And after this, they all cave It's not just that they stop here. Every church that caves to, we see it in our day, sexual infidelity. You can trace it back 30, 40 years before this. They cave right here. Because if a woman is not a woman for the glory of God, then it doesn't matter who she goes after or who goes after her. And it doesn't matter what she does to herself. Women are made women by God. Because he looked at Adam and he said, Adam's alone. And he wanted a woman to be there. That in no way is anti-woman. It is no way for God to make a woman. I prayed about it in Proverbs 31. No way would God make that woman lift her up as someone that all of us should exemplify and praise and bring glory and laud and honor to her womanhood because she's really strong. She's really courageous. She knows the Lord. She loves her husband. She praises him and others. Others praise her. In what way is the Bible ever anti-woman? It's not. Now they argue, uh, and their argument ought to provoke immediate suspicion because it is good to be suspicious whenever anyone suddenly decides a particular scripture no longer applies. These instructions were not just for Ephesus. The Holy Spirit gave them to all Christians everywhere. 
and for all women everywhere, regardless of their educational background. Uh, note, note that one of the women in Ephesus was Priscilla. And what's the argument of liberal theology? Is that Priscilla could preach and teach. Who's Paul writing this to, in part? Priscilla would have been one of the most theologically well-informed persons in her town. She probably would have had the strongest, thickest theological books in her library. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says, meaning Genesis 1 through 3. These explicit instructions about submission help keep Galatians chapter 3 in perspective. The oneness of men and women refers to their unity in Christ Jesus. The oneness of slave and master talks about their unity in Christ Jesus. The oneness of Jew and Greek talks about the unity that they have in Jesus, but it never actually breaks away of the glory of what makes a woman a woman. I said a couple weeks ago, women are better than men at being women. No man can ever be a woman better than a woman. Men are better than women at being a man. You can never, woman, you can never beat me at being a man, as weak as I may be. God makes us like that and uses us like that. That principle of spiritual unity is in no way contradicted by recognizing that God has given men and women differing spiritual responsibilities in the home and in the church. It's a mistake to use the salvific principle of Galatians 3 to overrule the sanctifying commands about the role of the woman in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and elsewhere. (laughs) I'm now at the end of my sermon, so wasn't that something? Come back next week for the follow-up on this, but what I think, what I want to harness just briefly for a second is this may feel like um, a lot of things that you don't know why you would ever need to apply it for yourself. I want us to remember that the gospel starts... The understanding of the gospel actually starts in the creation, where God made everything good, where he found one who was alone, and God found it good to make Adam a helpmate, and they were together to rule over all of creation and be reflectors of his glory. Now, anytime you and I come face to face with the scripture, and it's not just here, that might come face to face with you, it might be It might be uh, scriptures that talk about you not having a haughty heart or you not having a greedy soul or you not having a murderous thought or you not having a lustful inclination or you not even going to cheat on someone who's not your spouse. That The word confronts you. The question that all of us need to walk away with it is, do you trust God through his word to make you like he wants to make you by your submission to it? And this is for all of us. Even if we don't like something or even if we do like something, by the applying work of us submitting ourselves to the power of God's Spirit, showing himself through the work of the Scripture, do we trust him with our lives to make us like he wants to make us? Will you trust him to make you like he's made you and also to build our church as he desires to build our church? pray we do. Let's pray together.